Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I speak with Jessica Kalu-Taradis, the Senior Officer Teaching and Learning Literacy and Instructional Coach in Canberra and Goulburn Catholic Education. In 2022, she travelled to the USA, England and France, where she met with leading experts to investigate effective literacy screening and instructional practices to support older, struggling readers as part of her Churchill Fellowship. Jessica's work was nationally recognised in 2019 with the Commonwealth Bank Teaching Award. It's this report that we really dig into today. She speaks about her amazing experience meeting people like Anita Archer and Stanislas Dahan and goes through some case studies of schools that have implemented a multi-tiered system of support framework effectively. She also gives us some exciting breaking news. So here is my conversation with Jessica Kalu-Turadis. It's my pleasure to introduce Jessica Kalu-Turadis. Jess, are you able to just give us a bit of an intro into your journey into the position that you're in today? Yes, sure. Well, thanks for having me, by the way. It's a pleasure to be to be interviewed today for your podcast. It's hard to go back to where I started, but obviously people might be aware that I was born and bred in France, but uh, I'll start from day one, I landed in Australia. So that was back in 2007, where I landed in Perth, and I was initially coming to Perth to work as an au pair to practice my English. And I was yeah, also yeah. studying a master in Aboriginal studies. So I came with the intent to spend time in an Aboriginal community to collect data about my fieldwork. So I was looking at the emergency plan launched by John Howard in 2007. It was called the 2007 Northern Territory National Response. I was looking at the impact on Aboriginal communities. So that's the first that's why I first came the first time and ended up volunteering in Hermansburg uh, called Entire by its Aboriginal name. And it's located 150 k's north of Alice Springs. Okay, well. and, and that's probably the first time that my passion for education was ignited. So I just faced social economic disadvantages, you know, faced by Aboriginal people. And so I ended up flying back to France, submitted my thesis and then came back under a PhD that I yeah. eventually dropped <laughs> and then yeah, got yeah. teaching. And so I did a graduate DPED uh, at the University of Western Australia in Perth. I majored in TESOL, so teaching English as a second language and then LOT. Then I got my graduate diploma and then I ended up going further into studies and did a Master of Education, specialised in special education at uh, Edith Cowan University. And that was, I was very lucky because that's where I really clicked and I had attended uh, classes with Professor Lauren Hammond. And yeah, that that's probably was a very key turning point in my teaching careers or even the starting point. I ended up applying for a job in a high school and got a job as a special education teacher in a secondary setting. So that was at Como Secondary College in Western Australia. So 
uh, was in charge to run and deliver intervention for kids at risk between year seven and year nine. At the time, that was year eight. There hadn't been a transition of year seven yet in high school. And yep. so, uh, yeah, so that's pretty much where first got it got me into that niche of, you know, targeting intervention for high school, you know, students. And then after that, I spent about eight years in, in the sitting and I was running literacy and numeracy intervention. And I was kind of running in circle a little bit. I felt like my job would have been made redundant after eight years. I thought, well, if jobs done well in primary school, then, you know, I would have less kids coming into high school and able to read. But actually, the numbers kept growing. We had increasing numbers of kids who had lower levels in literacy, and especially kids in, you know, year seven and able to read a single word or a CBC word. So I was just considering, like, looking at what was happening in a primary school setting. And then I actually, that's where I applied for a churchy fellowship with the ambition to travel and to learn about, you know, additional practices about what, what can be done better in that space. And in the meantime, I was a bit hectic. I got pushed to work across to South Australia Department of Education to work yep. as a literacy coach as part of the Literacy Guaranteed Unit, which you yep. spoke about with Jess in your last session. Um, yep. So I ended up, you know, taking on a challenge. I really wanted to work in that early years space because I wanted to understand what could be done better in that prevention space rather than the way to fail kind of approach that we're facing these days waiting too long until the kids failed after a prolonged period of time to even, you know, provide intervention in a high school setting. I felt like mm. it was already too late. And then, so yeah, did what was meant to be six months in Adelaide, ended up being 18 months. I mm. uh, really enjoyed my time there. I used to um, coach teachers and advise principals on evidence-based reading instruction. I used to help with the implementation of the phonics check in year one. Um, my patch was in on the Air Peninsula, so I used to travel every three weeks uh, from Adelaide to Port Lincoln and then travel all the way on the Air Peninsula up to Streaky Bay, uh, Tambi Bay, some of those regional public schools. Wow. And then and then I got another job <laughs> offer to move across to Canberra. So I, I had heard about the Catalyst Initiative, the system-wide initiative. Yeah with that, you know, new approach to teaching and learning. I mean, new, I shouldn't even say new, but the alignment with research and and that heavy investment on early literacy. And I already knew some of the providers involved in the project and ended up applying for the position. It was actually Elena Douglas from the CEO of Knowledge Society who put me toward that path and sent me the job application (laughs) Uh, or the job, you know, advertisement. Yeah. yeah, and then I applied, got the job, accepted the job before I even got to visit Canberra. Yeah. <laughs> and then off I went. I just drove from Adelaide with my car and <laughs> got to um, Canberra, a brand new city where I knew no one, and started the job um, within, you know, our Catholic education of Canberra and Goulburn with Patrick Ellis and, you know, Brossbox and yeah, that's that's where the journey took me. So now I'm part of that amazing initiative, rolling out, you know, evidence-based practice at a system level and witnessing the first or the early progress of of or the impact of that initiative across the system, which is very exciting. Yeah, great, great journey. I love the story. And you know, like just looking at your 
the way that you kind of came across to Australia? Like, how did you develop, how did this, you know, a young French girl, how did you develop this interest in Australia's First Nations people? Uh, I grew up with parents that uh, are very good travellers. Okay, so yeah. as a young child and teenagers, I used to travel a lot across Europe. And my mum used to go to London, you know, I mean, every year I used to travel to Spain. I used to go to many other European countries. And actually, I should say, I was born in Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. So okay. yeah. uh, I did move a lot. Came up another country. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So I guess, yeah, I knew about other countries. I've always been attracted to other cultures and yeah. found it quite exotic, but in a sense that I really like to learn about how how they live, how they view society and and what are the, you know, the social norms within societies. And so that's why I went into uh, psychology, social studies, and anthropology. So my first degree was in uh, ethnology. Um, and then, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Super interesting. All right. And, you know, we're going to touch on your current role a bit later in today's conversation. But sure. I just want to find out a bit more about your Churchill Fellowship experience and, you know, what that was like. And you, know, you briefly mentioned when you applied for it, but yeah, t- talk us through like what, what the experience was like. Nothing like I could have imagined. I never even could picture myself meeting all those, you know, big guru in education, all those literacy experts at a you know international level. Yeah. Um that was quite intimidating. Like the first meeting with, you know, the my first meeting was in Paris with Stanislas Dehan. Yeah, um, well. I was invited for lunch and then I uh, ended up having um, lunch with him. Yeah. And then before, yeah, that was before we head up to the Ministry of Education to attend a plenary session with the rest of the team. Yeah, that was amazing. Like just just the learning. It was a very intensive and, and a huge learning curve. I felt intimidating. In what way? Well, because oh, I had those very high-level pitch kind of conversation with those people. I felt, you know, how you looked at your uh, best rock star and you're like, oh, my God, you know, I can't even talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) But then then you get over that first hump and then after you do one and a second and a third, then at the end of my 10 weeks, it was easier to talk to them and and to feel like, yeah, I, I had something to add to the table and I also had a lot to learn from them. And getting to know them as well, because it's, you know, on a, on a more personal level, not just mm-hmm. about, you know, talking about their research, but also getting to know them and their and their journey into where where they are now. Um, it was very, it, it was just amazing. Like I ended up having like a formal dinner at Oxford with Kate Nation. Um, yeah. Anita Archer, I met her twice during my 10 weeks travel. And on the second time, she invited me over at her place to spend the day with her. Yeah, and right. she took me to her local cafe for breakfast. And, <laughs> and, then, and then she had, I remember she had a, she had to run a, a, a professional learning session online to, you know, a thousand people across, you know, the states and yeah, then yeah, she yeah. found myself wandering in her library in the basement and and I was like looking at all the books and you know opening <laughs> up the books looking at her notes and annotation on the books and find yeah. that gold book um the one I really like from Siegfried Eggerman the theory of instruction yeah, and she yeah. had two copies and I was like oh my god I really like this book <laughs> you know it's a rare publication or edition yeah. and uh Anyway, she came back down, we continued our conversation, had lunch and so on. And 
and I ended up walking out uh, with a copy of that book. <laughs> <laughs> she gave me uh, about, yeah, I don't know, maybe 10 books for me to to just read and um, it was yeah. just amazing. And she's very very um very warm it's very authentic like it's very yeah. easy to connect with her and she really built authentic and meaningful relationship on a personal yeah. level and yeah. obviously she's she's just amazing in terms of expressing instruction and, and the, the knowledge and the depths and breadth of knowledge that she's got over you know that she accumulated over the years it was yeah. it was great yeah and what you know what's what's something that you learned from these people that you didn't necessarily realize from having read either their research or their books uh you know what was something that that kind of you came away from this trip thinking oh geez i never really thought about it that way i think i always put them on a pedestal but then i realized that they all started like us like yeah. some of them started as teachers mm -hmm. um some just started you know in academia but they all started somewhere later you know like yeah. some are like we all often see just the tip of the iceberg, you know, all the effort and hard work and all those, you know, late night or work like Anita Archer, she's got on, I don't know if I could say that, but on her inner office, she's got that bed and she's got all the piles of, of research papers that she published and she read over 10, 10 research papers a day. That's her homework. Something I didn't know, I, it's hard. I, I haven't think of that one, but I think it gives me hope or hope like it was just inspiring to learn about their journey, not just about their work, but on a personal level and knowing yeah. where they come from and what drive them. So each of them had a bit of a, you know, their own motives to, you yeah. know, what drove them. But at, at the end of the day, we're all driven by a very strong moral purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all about, we have similar outcome or similar visions in in a sense that we promote, you know, more equitable education outcomes and, and we want the best for the kids and we hope that the research translates down to a classroom level. That was something that I find was common across all of them. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, and, and I like how you referred back to that work ethic. A lot of the times, you know, when you when you see like experts in in their field, you automatically just go to thinking, oh, they've always been like that. You know, or like if, if it's a sporting star or like you said before, a rock star, some sort of celebrity or, you know, in our case, edgy celebrities, we just kind of assume like they've always had this status and have always had this knowledge. But like you're saying there, it, it's come down to hard work most yeah. of the time. And, well, and I'd say all the time, really. Yeah. That's right. And you start, you know, it brings me back to that education concept we've got of that you start as a novice and then and yeah. then you built, you know, and you get better at it and, and you built knowledge upon knowledge and then, mm. you know, you grow your, you know, your knowledge and become an expert in the field. Yeah. And I love how you've got someone like Anita who is this expert and she has been, you know, at the top of the game for so long and she's still reading so many research papers. I'm assuming just to make sure that Firstly, she knows her stuff and, and and that she's also showing that she's open to changing her mind about things as well. Yeah, that's a very good point. I feel like she always upskill herself. So there's that gross mindset as well, that openness to maybe be wrong or, or right, like to know when to change, you know, your your views on education if the latest research points toward that direction. So, yeah, very keen to keep abreast of the latest research in education and, and not taking things for granted, not being yeah. set in their ways. 
Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Siegfried Engelman as well just then. And yes. So obviously a lot of your thinking has been around instruction and effective instruction. And, you know, like what would you say are like some of the major differences between effective instruction and ineffective instruction? Yeah, it's a good one. I was thinking about that one. I feel like the worst thing that I find like in in ineffective instruction is when the teacher or we realise that after a whole unit of work, the kids haven't learned it. But when the assessment task comes too late and we rely so heavily on, you know, summative assessment and not actually embedding formative assessment throughout the unit of work. So it, it actually like, comes, you know, when, when you realize that actually you're at the end of your unit and students are still struggling or haven't got what you're trying to teach. So to me, that's probably the most ineffective instruction. So in terms of what's effective, therefore, you need you know, to check in on a regular basis, make sure that what you teach is being learned. It's not because you've taught it that they've learned it. That's mm. a very good one. And you can't put the fault on the students. Um, I like that. There's a quote from a man saying, if the students hasn't learned it, um, oh, what was it? Oh, the teacher hasn't taught it. Yes. And that's to me, is super powerful, super meaningful too. So... Yeah, thinking about having a clear learning intention, clear learning objectives, but that starts from knowing, having a deep understanding of your content and knowing what the big areas are and the relationship between those big areas. So you can actually break the learning into smaller chunk and smaller yeah. and manageable chunks. So therefore, you can scaffold that and teach and build learning upon what has been taught as well. So that scope and sequence, you know, logical, clear sequence of, of skills is crucial. Uh, you don't start, you know, a problem-solving task where you haven't put the prerequisite components. Talking about feedback is important. So I was talking about ongoing formative assessment. So feedback goes back both ways. So by questioning or quizzing students and listening to their answers, you know whether you can accelerate the learning, stop or remedy or, you know, have to reteach a point. And so you feed yourself or inform your practice by listening to what the students, you know, what their answers is or what they've learned. And in the same way, giving feedback to students, give them an opportunity to know where they're going next and where they need to remedy or, or change. Thinking about the explicitness of your instruction as well. So we know about the gradual release of responsibilities with the teacher modeling, you know, the learning first or the concept or the skill, and then providing sufficient time to practice with a highly scaffolded approach. That's, you know, the how do we do, you do phase, phases, sorry. And then until students can do that you do which is when they can apply the learning into a you know a new content or a new context sorry where they can work independently however I don't like that I mean I don't like you know I believe in the in that I do we do you do or morally test approach but sometimes I find there are some misconceptions in in teachers thinking that it's a linear approach where I think the idle we do you do doesn't have to be in that order. So sometimes mm. you must start with a review or warm-up, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And in that case, you might just be retrieving what you've learned. So that's more of a you do or maybe we do. And then you introduce the new learning, which is the I do. So that's another way of, of thinking about it. Yeah, so highly sequential, highly systematic, building from easy tasks to more complex tasks, making sure that you apply the golden oak principle so you don't want a task that is too easy so otherwise the kids are just 
you know, get bored and you don't mm. want a task that is too hard. So therefore they might give up. So you want to find that middle range where it's challenging enough, but not too easy either. So, and by modeling and providing scaffold, students feel less anxious and they're more, yep. they're more supported in their learning as well. So if you don't provide, and, and I'm thinking as I'm talking, giving immediate feedback is a very important one as well, because you don't want any misconception to form. So in DI, it's very important. They field test all their script uh, based on students' responses. So if a student makes an error when they do field test the script, they're going to modify the script to troubleshoot the misconception before it ever happened. And it reduces any misconception by making clear, providing example, non-example to really clarify uh, the definition of the concept. For instance, you could use, you know, faded worked examples as well. That shows that gradual release model where you support the child's learning until they become more independent in their learning. Awesome. You've, you've gone through so much there. And, and I just want to touch on like one of the things that you mentioned um, at the start of that point there around knowing the content. Yeah. I think it's not spoken about enough. When we're talking about explicit instruction or effective instruction, we don't often talk about the fact that the teacher needs to know their stuff in order to do it effectively. You know, the things that you're talking about, that the formative assessment, the checking for understanding and providing feedback, and then knowing how to sequence that you know, concept in small steps. You can't do it, do that if you don't know the content. And well, in Australia, and you know, from what I'm hearing and seeing you know, pretty much around the world, we're just not giving teachers like that content knowledge that they need on top of this, you know, this pedagogical knowledge. And, you know, like how have you seen effectively teachers being supported in developing their content knowledge or being supported in teaching content without having that knowledge? Well, there's two ways to go with it. Like if you go, if you have a, a teacher that might not have that content knowledge, then you might go for a more scripted approach where you provide a program that is commercially published with a script or an instructional sequence. So therefore, you reduce the violence and you make sure that you could also make sure that they're also successful and impactful in their teaching. So that's one way to go about it. I remember I had to teach spelling to a group of kids at risk and picked up direct instructions, spelling mastery program, right? Mm. I didn't know enough about spelling at the time or how to teach it. I picked up that program and given its direct instruction, you know, highly scaffolded, scripted, you've got that tracking, track sequencing. So everything's done for you. You've got the scope and sequence. You can just trust it. It's been field tested, you know, evidence-based. And then as you teach it, you just learn. You just learn the, you know, spelling rules, spelling conventions. You know, you learn with the kids as you're doing it. So that's yeah. one way to go about it. Another way in our system, for instance, at our CCG, so Catholic Education of Canberra and Goulburn, we have partnered with OCA, so a not-for-profit organisation that um, produces or create teacher materials by teachers for teachers. And uh, we've got, we provided a whole curriculum resources in math for K to six. And we've also got some resources coming up for the three to six space because we've gone heavily with some systematic synthetic 
phonics program in the space of the K to two. So we've got some option there with endorsed programs. Uh, and then three to six was a bit of a, you know, you know, hit and miss because there's nothing much out there. And so, yeah, so we've provided some of these to make sure that we've got a knowledge rich curriculum where you lower the violence in teaching, but also ensuring that the content is high quality. So, again, mm -hmm. you hit that equity issue in education by providing the knowledge content, ensuring all students accessing similar content, which is high quality content. Yeah, yeah, really, you know, I love the way that, you know, both, both you, you responded to that question and also the way that, you know, CECG is, <laughs> is, is, yeah, responding with supporting teachers in this because it is such a, a tricky thing to be learning so much and then applying what you're learning at the same time. Yeah, there's a lot of changes that teachers might have to be making when they are kind of crossing over to being more evidence-based in their instruction. And, and so, yeah, I think it's important that we do look at ways of shrinking that change for teachers. Mm. And, and yeah, I agree with you, like, you know, direct instruction programs can be so great at that. And I guess like one thing, you know, like I've reflected on is like, is, can you have too much direct instruction? What do you, what do you think about that? I think during instruction is very good to teach foundational skills, for instance, for reading on math, for instance, but during my my trip in, in the US, I visited the Thales Academy. So they it's full implementation at a whole school level, K to five, math and reading or you know, numeracy literacy, full DI programs across the board. And after year five, the kids have demonstrated such strong foundation in those early literacy numeracy foundations or essential skills that they they drop DI at that point and go in yep. a more biological approach where you know it's more about the problem solving again it's that continuum when you start as a novice and move up to an expert level where you need less scaffold you might just as an expert you need less less feedback you need uh, to delay the feedback over time you benefit better of that of doing you know problem solving a task on your own so i think too much or not too much it's good in a way that it provides the instructional design like i don't expect a teacher to come up with their own resources i think that's unfair and too much asking we talk a lot about the you know workload of teachers but i'm thinking i was reflecting on it and that remind me of anita she mentioned like for instance surgeons uh, they're not asked to build their their tools you know, mm. so same with the, a pilot. We're not asking mm. him to build a plane. They mm. just have to, or just, they have to pilot the air, airplane and yeah. make sure that, you know, their transportation or delivery, I guess, so mm. is fine. So same for teachers. I feel like they should focus on how they respond to students' answers and learning and focus their attention on the delivery to make sure the learning sticks and, and that's what they've taught he's learned. Yeah, it's such a, you know, specific skill set, developing curriculum and mm. developing curriculum resources, you know, like if you're using slides or if you're using booklets or whatever it is, like to, to actually design all of that, it takes a lot of time and a lot of understanding of, you know, things like cognitive load theory and and that, again, coming back to that content-specific um, knowledge, yeah. you need all of this. And, and yeah, like we, we can't be expecting novice teachers to have, have it all. And, again, it's a time factor as well. So... Yeah, it's definitely something that that schools and systems they need to be considering. It's you know, it it's not an easy thing for teachers just to rock up to the classroom. They can't just rock up to the classroom. You know, they need to be using things to teach with. 
but if we're if we're not providing it with them then we need to be giving them the time to do it and we've got a you know teacher crisis at the moment yeah yeah Yeah, that's right and and they're probably not trained i mean i wasn't trained to design a whole to come up with the whole di program for instance Mm. that there's a lot of uh, nuances in the engineering of a program like being an instructional designer that's not given to everybody and and it's not what we can take in either yeah yeah you know i think you, you pretty much need a separate degree in itself just to read Engelman's theory of instruction. That's as right. it is. <laughs> yes, that's so true. Yes, <laughs> very complex. Yes. So, look, one of one of the things that you've um, spent a lot of time working around is you know the intervention side of education. And so, why, like, firstly, like, what is a multi-tiered system of support, and then you know why do schools need to implement it? Good point. I'm going to refer to a definition. I'm just going to pick my Churchill report. A definition ready to go from the Massachusetts Department of Education. So for them, MTSS is an evidence-based framework designed to meet the needs of all students by ensuring that schools optimize data-driven decision-making, progress monitoring, and evidence-based supports and strategies with increasing intensity to sustain um, students. It's not new. It's nothing new about it. It's not a program. It's not an intervention. It's a way of thinking. A simulated system of support as a, a way to use data to better inform your decision making and to provide timely targeted intervention to those kids who require the most support. So it's a shift of mindset as well because it's it requires people to move from a wait to fail approach to a more preventative and proactive approach where you screen all the students uh, from the get-go from day one to identified or flag students who are likely to develop reading difficulties or some who have already fallen behind like I'm talking about high school kids you got some year seven coming into your schools you don't know those kids you have barely any data there's a bit of a gap between primary school you know that transition to year six to year seven How do you know where to invest your resources? Who do you know? Who is at risk? You you don't even know. So that multi-tiered system of support allows you to provide that support at a point in time. So when you screen all your students, you can identify who is at risk. Then further, you just administer diagnostic testing to find out where the gaps are. So what kind of um, core deficit skills uh, need to be addressed so it, as the name implies, it's based on a, on a tiered instruction. So you've got that tier one, which is your universal tier one core quality instruction. And that's where it starts. He often that saying about tier one is the bedrock of MTSS. So you must deliver high quality instruction there, high leverage practice, high impact teaching strategies based on research. That's going to hit the mark for most students. And then you might have some students who are not quite responding to that quality instruction. Often you would, the research say that about 20% or less might not respond uh, and and ensure adequate progress. So therefore you provide a T2 intervention in smaller groups to intensify the delivery of the instruction, target the, the, the skills at risk. And for those kids who are severely behind and might need more one-to-one, more intensive intervention, that's that's a tier three intervention. And so you move like you've got that pyramid where you've got your tier one as your core instruction, tier two, tier three, and the intensity of instruction intensifies with the level of needs of the kids. So MTS just allows you to yeah match the intervention to the level of needs of those students. 
Okay, so, you know, just looking at, I guess, some examples, you know, what sort of assessments can schools and systems be using? Well, it's a big question because that would, it would be possibly, oh, it would be different. It depends. Like if it's numeracy, literacy, are you talking primary, high school? So I guess I know better around the literacy space. Um, I've worked with some high school and primary schools. So we don't know enough around that high school setting like I mean MTSS is not as easy to implement in a high school setting because uh, often departments work in silos you might not have a screening process and identification process in place yeah. um, so in our system for instance a lot of our schools are using the progress achievement test the PATR which I don't really think would tell you enough about the gaps in reading for those kids at risk. So I'll also recommend the DIBBLES assessment. So we use that, that one covers, can be used from kindy all the way through year eight. So it, it allows you for that consistency, even that transition from year six to year eight, for instance. So recently we've launched a platform within our organization to allow the year seven or our high schools and colleges to access the data from year six. So our principals uh, and leaders in high school now have access to the feeder schools so they can tell from which school their students are coming if they're coming within our system, so within our jurisdiction, right? Yeah. Uh, and you can also start building a reading profile of our students or the students coming into seven so that you can actually optimize your, your school resources and the allocation of your resources ahead of time. In my high school before that, when I was working in Western Australia, we used to connect with our feeder schools. And when our year six were coming for an injection or orientation day, we used yeah. to even test them <laughs> to yeah. anticipate the needs and work out, okay, what kind of kids, what kind of profile are we dealing with and, and where do we need to invest our resources? So big, a big thing about MTSS is, is really optimizing your service delivery and making sure you optimize the resources you've got available in schools. And we know that high schools, you're dealing with larger cohort, uh, so there might be a greatest need as well. So it is challenging. I think yeah. I got a bit off track there. Yeah, it's <laughs> all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of points there that we can talk to. And like, I guess you've started talking about some of you know, your own um, experiences, but whether it comes from your travels or, or just um, other stories or, you know, schools within um, your current system, where have you seen MTSS being done really well? The example, I've got a few examples. I've got about three three case studies within my Churchill report. So I invite, you know, anyone who's listening to, you know, deep dive in there. One that I constantly go back to, it's one yeah. that's to do with secondary schools. So I traveled to Blackpool. In England, yeah. one of the most deprived area in England. And yeah. I was looking at an initiative that was rolled out by a not-for-profit organization, The Right to Succeed. And they had a partnership with the town of Blackpool to lift literacy outcome in students aged between 11 to 14. And they approached all the high schools in Blackpool, or all, I'm not sure all, but at the end of the day, eight high schools have agreed to jump in and have set up a network of schools to roll out um, MTSS. So, I mean, that was that was part of it, but obviously MTSS involved, you know, universal screening. It involved um, bringing, you know, high quality, high impact teaching practices, diagnostic testing, providing intervention, sharing 
that responsibility, making reading a high priority, a high state priority in your in your schools. So those high schools have actually shared the license of a screener. They use the new group reading test as a as a screener, and they screened all their year seven, eight, and nines up to twice a year to identify the kids at risk. Then they've called out upon expert like Jessie Ricketts from the Royal Holloway University of London, where she's been helping those schools about the administration, selection of assessment, the administration, you know, building confidence in staff to administer assessment, to interpret data and target intervention to the needs of the kids. And they've set up interventions so they tend, it depends which schools, like I visited three schools, three high yeah. schools. Um, most of them had targeted intervention, but obviously it works slightly different based on their context. So one school withdraw the kids from one class at a time. So from one learning area at a time per week, but delivers intervention four times a week. And they've got specific interventions. So some intervention targets fluency practice, some targets decoding issues, some targets language comprehension. So they've got different, you know, like targeted intervention. And then they launched whole approach to literacy. So one initiative I really like in, in across those schools is that they're called the literary canons. So they had all their high school teachers to collaborate together to pick six novels per year, a year level. And at the start of the day, between three to five times a week, depending what school, they've got those classes running for 20 to 30 minutes where any teachers uh, they used the pastoral care or form. The teachers would read the novel for 20 minutes out loud, modeling, reading, you know, fluently with expression yep. and pausing at strategic point to clarify vocab, to ask questions and apply some reciprocal reading strategies that has been taught in other learning areas. And it's just so that they make the time for reading. They mm. actually set the priority and and value reading so it was amazing I walked into a class where there was a phys ed teacher yeah. running that class he was just sitting on the teacher desk and having the book right open and reading aloud with you know expression enthusiasm and and all the kids had a hard copy of the book and were tracking along yeah. some using their finger but it just shows the power of yeah well oral language and reading aloud and and these schools didn't make the assumption that those kids would have read those this literature outside of schools. So because we're in a world where kids tend to read less, yeah. um, they don't have the same background knowledge or general knowledge that, I don't know, 30 years ago, our parents might have. Yeah. So they, they brought in those very key literature pieces yeah. and with, you know, highly significant piece of work and, and made it part of their curriculum and, and embed that within the timetable. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And and you know, so just I've got a few questions about that. So, wh what sort of things were the schools collaborating on, and how like how did that kind of go about? So the high school, so th yeah. they had well, they they collaborated within their uh, their faculties, but also across. So, like for instance the selection of those novels, they use specific criteria, yeah. but they had to collaborate across different learning areas in trying to make sure that they could make explicit connection across the novels and over the year levels, right? And then they also collaborated on what they call the wiki bookmark. So they had a an approach to teaching vocabulary across the board and come up with some wiki bookmark, which 
is like little booklets, pamphlet that kids have and teachers use when they teach new vocab. And it has a whole list of highly frequent affixes. Okay, so yeah. based on a, a um, you know, morphological approach. Yeah. yeah, so they, they again, they collaborated on that one quite heavily because it worked so well that each faculty had started using or set up their own little wiki bookmark according to their learning area. So there was one for math, one for science, one for English, for instance. Then, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this question, but, like, in terms of getting that sort of buy-in from, you know, staff, like you mentioned, the PE teacher, like, I'm an ex-PE teacher, like, <laughs> just looking at how all of the teachers kind of bought into the fact that, like literacy is a responsibility of every teacher. You know, did you kind of find out about how they went about ensuring that everyone was, you know, on board with what was happening? I think it comes down to leadership. Uh, yeah. Having a very strong commitment from the leadership team to make sure that they don't steer away from their vision and their yeah. goals. So if literacy becomes a high priority, then this you have to stay on course, right? You have to stay the course, sorry. You you have to keep bringing that high priority, high stake, you know, decision around literacy. Any, any decision you take has to be aligned with your vision. So if yeah. literacy is your ultimate, you know, purpose or, or vision, then everything has to come aligned with it. They invested heavily on training their teachers. So then they obviously protected some time for them to collaborate, but also invested in upskilling and building teachers' capacity around literacy, what it looks like in a high school across multiple year level and also across learning area schools, you know, talking about vocab. Yeah. Some teachers didn't know about the the tiered vocabulary, you know, mm. what does that mean? Tier one vocab, tier two word, tier three. And yeah. what does that mean in my learning area? And there's yeah. a tendency to think that it's the English English business problem mm. or issue or responsibility where yeah. actually literacy in a high school setting is across it's all learning yeah. areas yes yeah. so all their pls professional learning development related to it and yeah and i guess when they see it's working when the kids re-engage pick up a book mm. use the word that you taught them i think that's the ultimate turning point or buying for teachers yeah. to say okay let's let's keep going that is working yeah yeah, yeah, great example there. Do you have um, any other stories that you want to share, you know, from your, your case studies that you've got? I think I'll invite everybody to go and, and have a read. So you can download my report online from the Winston Churchill portal. Just type my name and, and good Yeah, luck. I'll share the link as well. I'm yeah. 25 pages, so make sure you have a glass of wine and some cheese. <laughs> You know, and you do it in, in stages, you know. They're good stories. Actually, there might be one that I'd like, the Oregon Response to Intervention, sorry, Oregon Response to Instruction Intervention, which was an initiative that was uh, funded by the Department of Education in, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Oregon. And I met some of their literacy coaches and their role, they call themselves as MTSS coaches, actually, because oh, yeah. the whole point, they work with districts, so districts like a system like, a portfolio of schools, I guess, and they they worked with leaders, so they they don't even work directly with teachers, but they really worked at a high stack, you know, with leaders in terms of how they're going to introduce and implement multi-tiered system of support with the yeah. ultimate goal to look at reading, and they had coaches send out to schools to work with them 
Uh, and again, same same key component. You know, it's looking at our screening, progress monitoring, making sure you always go back to the data to inform your decision-making process. In the state, they used to refer to the teaming. So teaming is like having your stakeholders meeting on the on a regular basis to review the data. So, yeah. uh, some of them call it the whole school, what is it? The school-wide assessment team, the SWAT. Oh, yes. Yeah, I quite like, I quite oh, like right. it because it's quite catchy. Yeah, and yeah. making sure that because once you do the screening and once you do the diagnostic testing and progress monitoring, when is the time that you meet again and review the data? Like mm. sometimes it's the step that is missing when I go to schools. It's like, okay, well, where is your progress monitoring assessment? Like how often do you do it? So, you know, yeah, weekly, yeah. fortnightly, monthly, I find a lot of students might be stuck in intervention stuck as yeah because there's no exit criteria to get out mm. of intervention so yeah. are we hitting you know what are your exit criteria once you set up intervention if the kids is showing adequate progress then it should be a, a fluid like a dynamic approach where kids could go in and out there are some intervention that teach too they don't need to run for the entire year for instance yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah and the leadership has to be involved too making sure that you know you've got really uh, you know, accountability mechanism in place as well and making sure that you help and support teachers to embed any teaching change if it's to tier one and you have to bring in explicit instruction, how you're going to support your teachers and upskill them around early literacy instruction, for instance. Yes, it's a, it's a good point you make around, you know, that whole the implementation side of things and and just making sure that you do plan for each of those steps. Otherwise, yeah, you, you see a lot of disconnection between different groups of teams within schools or, you know, you might have people who are involved with intervention and they're doing some sort of assessment, but then they're not really communicating with the classroom teacher at all and, yeah, and yeah vice versa, or you've got assessments being done, but like you said, nothing's been done with that actual data. You know, no one's using it at all. It's, it's there, sitting there, but there's no one actually yeah, making, I guess, any decisions around what should happen next. Um, and yeah, so you, I, I you like remind that. me of, sorry, I don't want to talk over you. It reminds me of, of also the alignment between the tiers. That was something that came out quite strong in my discussions during my travel, making yep. sure that tier three, two and one are aligned. You don't want to teach something that's completely different or use different instructional techniques of strategies it's it's unfair on the kids already at risk when yeah. they you know they're often in special education when you're in t2 they're often taught you know with um highly scaffolded approach you know cumulative review and um ongoing feedback formative assessment and so on and when they're back to the mainstream class sometimes it could be just left to chance and 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 so really hard for them to adapt to two different instructional approaches for instance so very important that that aligns fully and that they're not missing out on the content the curriculum content as well at year level so that's another important point I'd like to make is that when you deliver intervention in schools or apply that multi-tiered system of support the t2 and 3 should be an addition of your t1 so it should be an extra dosage of, in, of instruction or for those kids they might need multiple repetition or exposure to a concept or more time to practice or become more automatic with the skills it's not instead it's in addition so t1 yeah. sorry t2 and three should be in addition of t1 instruction yeah yeah great point and, and 
thanks for clearing that up. And, you know, it also comes back to your point earlier around how school leaders, they need to be on top of this knowledge and understanding it because they're the ones that are going to have to be coordinating, you know, all of this and, and organising and, and making sure that there is alignment between the tiers and, you know, that people are using the data in the right way and, yeah, they're not missing out on the tier one instruction. So there's there's all these little decisions that have to be made at that sort of leadership organisational level. And if the leaders don't have that understanding of what needs to be happening, then it's quite easy for them to yeah make mistakes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not they're not hard components to put in place, like when you looked at a multi-tiered system of support framework. However, they required a constant uh, refinement. They're not static, like MTSS is forever moving, sort of like there's always room for refinement. You get new cohorts, you've got new kids with different learning difficulties. You're always going to have to refine it. Yeah. One of the, I guess, the, the practical issues that you know I see a lot of schools having around this is is just the the funding and the staffing of it you know and so especially when you're first making these these changes or you're doing these assessments if you haven't necessarily had you know really strong t1 instruction and you haven't been doing a lot of those assessments and that that mtss framework hasn't been followed when you initially do it you find there's gaps absolutely everywhere you know across yeah. the whole school and you're like We've got, you know, we've got so many kids that need to be in tier two and tier three. Yeah. What are we going to do about it? And, you know, you've only got this amount of funding. You've only got, you know, th this That's many easy. staff, yeah, that can actually support the, the tier two and tier three intervention. You know, like, do you have any advice for schools around, like, what sort of decisions they can make there? Oh, it's a hard one. It, it gets very overwhelming. So the ratio is roughly 80-20. So if you have more than 20% of kids at risk at a tier one, that's a tier one problem. And you can't get away from a tier one problem. So it all starts from tier one. Like you can't, yeah, you have to address the problem at a tier one level, making sure that you start by delivering, you know, high quality curriculum content, high quality teaching strategies grounded in research that's where you're going to get the best return on investment. And by yep. having that very strong core, tier one core instruction, that would reduce the pressure on special ed or special education services. So more kids, or sorry, less kids would require further intervention if you really hit the mark at a tier one level. So in terms of, you know, staffing is always going to be an issue. Time possibly the biggest challenge in schools everywhere yeah. i'd say so yeah. finding time to upskill your your staff you know not expecting them as well to to do the learning on their own so it brings me back to initial teacher training <laughs> that's mm -hmm. why you should that's where it all started really with they're really highly highly skilled and trained yeah. then any teachers picking up you know a whole class tier one off you go you've got your highly effective instruction nailing you know nailing it um, staffing where there's a shortage of teachers across the board like you know it's not just in Australia so that's that's mm. massive issue I don't really have a solution for that one you know you might have to get the principals and 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 APs to just step in to run some intervention I remember my principal used to run intervention 
for kids at risk in a high school setting, you used to share a class or an intervention class with the with the deputy because we didn't have enough staffing. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've seen some schools use like community volunteers, so whether it's like parents or, or grandparents. Right, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and they've come in and and you know run things like you know, multi lit and. I guess the, the benefits of having scripted things can be, it can make it easier to have right. um, volunteers coming in and, and running that sort of thing. Thanks, um, yeah. Good question. Thank you, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, moving kind of more into your current role and, and, you know, I know that you've done a lot of this over the years around, you know, supporting teachers in making these changes, you know, whether that's through, providing professional learning or instructional coaching or, you know, whatever it is, but, you know, what sort of things have you found have been effective in supporting teachers in changing their practice? Mm, well, you don't make any assumption that they already know it. That's first one. And you provide the theory, but also you model it. So I find that when I work in the space of coaching, modeling the practice, is also very important you get a bit more buying and when you model within their classroom then they see that it might work you know there's a tendency to say oh that's not going to work with my kids you know then i can't do this <laughs> and actually when you go in and pick up you know let's say i don't know i run spending mastery modeling lesson let's do it with the class and and when you see it happening with the class that that might finish to to get the buying from those teachers in terms of change of practice I think you need to have a good balance between the theory but and the practice, giving them enough time for them to practice the new skills and to embed them, but also for them to be able to refine their practice by providing feedback, for instance, or or you don't model and just walk away or do a training and then walk away like my line manager, former line manager from say used to say, what is it? Spray, pray and go away. <laughs> you know you don't want that approach because yeah you just pray that the change of practice is going to happen after you deliver the PL or a staff meeting now you need to constantly go back and check in and so that's why instructional coaching is what is very valuable but you also need to set up some accountability measure where the teachers is held accountable against that change of practice mm -hmm. and always I like to re always refer back shift the focus to the students to the change or the outcome that you get by changing your practice what outcome do you see positive outcome do you see in your students so not always saying oh you have to change but hey if you use this strategy have a look at how it impacts your students and by saying the positive outcome or I don't know it could be an increase of student engagement in the class that helps teachers believe more in the practice and be more confident in using that technique for instance yeah that's, that's yeah some great stuff there and you know i think the first thing that you spoke about like don't make assumptions that they already know it like i find there's so much that you need to unpack when you're you're delivering professional learning because you're dealing with a lot of misconceptions at mm. the same time and and you've got teachers that have these ingrained habits and so like what they're trying to do is that, you know, they're, they're suffering from that, you know, different cognitive biases where yes, uh, they're, yeah. they're trying to, you know, make these connections to what they're already doing that. And what, what you see is that they think that they're already doing it when a lot of the things that you're talking about aren't quite what you're talking about that they're doing. Yeah, yeah how do you overcome that? So yeah. I agree 
some teachers might say, oh, I teach explicitly. Yeah. And then you go in and you're like, oh, actually, no, you went from I do to you do and there's no practice in the middle. And yeah. then you wonder why students are calling out, say, oh, what do I have to do? Mm. <laughs> so they need to see it. It, when I did, I went to the, I did the training to become an effective DI trainer in, in Eugene at the yeah. National Institute of for Direct Instruction. That was yeah. last July. And one of their coaching, or coaching model or, or the way they train, they do only, I can't remember the ratio exactly, but I remember the ratio for modeling was 50%. So out of a whole session, when you deliver your PL, 50% has to be devoted to the practice. So for teachers to practice it. Okay, yeah. And then about, I think it was 10, oh, there's one on theory, one on the rational, understand why we do it, why it's important. And then the final part was about, you know, giving feedback after the practice, for instance, and wrap it up. But yeah, there was a huge change. There's half of the session has to be spent and devoted to practice. So, yeah. yeah. And so do you mean, when you're saying practice, do you mean like re rehearsal? So this is yes, like the outside. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So... I mean, in DI, if you're familiar with DI script, you have to use uh, signals, for instance. Yeah. So, you know, hand signals or visual audible signals. So therefore, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of the program I spend or the training I spend on, on rehearsing some of those techniques. I pick signal, but that could be anything else. That could be. That could be error correction procedures. You know, in DI, it's pretty, it's big. So you have to know which steps you're going to follow as you hear mistakes using universal, sorry, unison responses, for instance. So mm -hmm. it, those are key techniques you want to rehearse before they get into the classroom that provide that safety net for, stu for, sorry, for students, for teachers. So when they face their group of students, then it should be easier, yeah. but it's also very uncomfortable. <laughs> when you do it with your peers, right, with your staff. Uh, I run some staff meeting modeling practice and having teachers to rehearse the script, the, re the delivery of the script with the signals and some of them, you could tell that it just makes them feel uncomfortable and, you know, it's a bit hard and they don't really want to do it, but it's so powerful. The rehearsal it is, yeah. Is yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we've got to start to change that narrative around what our expectations are for, you know, professional learning and, you know, what what steps need to be taken in order for staff and, you know, teachers to effectively make those changes um, that we're talking about because, you know, it's, it's not just them getting an opportunity to practice it outside of the classroom, but it's also an opportunity, you know, for for school leaders to check for understanding at the same time and, and you know, mm -hmm. to see how it is going. And like you said before, if we're not able to see that and we're not able to see how teachers are going before they get, you know, into that live classroom environment, yeah, it can be really hard to to know what's actually been understood. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And then I'm thinking in terms of accountability, making sure leaders or even between teachers doing some peer observation, yeah. observe each other and maybe against a little checklist to to notice when when some of those techniques are being delivered eff effectively yeah and allowing time for them again to rehearse practice refine but also getting some feedback and not not the feedback that you get with you know coming in with the stick you really want to instill that gross mindset and the fact yeah. that we're learning and 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 we already, you know, there might be already really good practice, but there might be some practice that are even better or have greater impact. Mm. So you might have to de-implement or, you know, yeah. take away some of your good practice for a better one. 
Mm. Yeah, and and that can be tricky as well. Is is actually getting teachers to understand that, yeah, you you, you know you might be going okay at the moment, but there's actually some things that you could be doing to be going even better. And mm-hmm. yeah, I guess a lot of this comes back to that you know building the right sort of culture within your staff so that they're they're feeling that sense of psychological safety and you know they've got you've got that relational trust and and so they they do feel like it's okay to you know because a lot of times when you make these changes you've got to go backwards at the start because you're learning a new way of doing things and and so you want teachers to feel safe with you know making mistakes and maybe not being as effective as they were initially but then you know almost having faith in in the school leaders and the approach that you're taking in the direction that you're going in yeah to to trust the 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 process really and and to go forward with it yeah i agree with you yeah it's important yeah and so you know in your in your current role now like what what sort of things are you working on you know what are you doing what does it look like day to day working hard (laughs) Um, i'm sure yeah, of course. I do lots of travels. That takes me quite, yeah, it's quite time consuming. I mean, I really enjoy it. Like I really, really enjoy visiting schools because that's where I can build relationship and really see what's happening on the ground and provide, yeah. you know, the support that's needed in the point of time. So I do lots of travel because we've got, you know, our jurisdiction, our system is across two jurisdictions. You've got the STD and New South Wales, one of our uh, furthest our school is about five hours drive up to Lake Kajeligo. So, yeah, that takes me a lot of time. So, I, yeah, I go in and, and attend. These days I meet a lot with um, leaders because across 56 schools, it's really hard to get down to a classroom level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I still do. Obviously, I do, you know, walkthroughs and, and um, class observation. Often try – I really try hard to build um, leaders' capacity in, in – implementing best practice and and refine school processes which is either screening identification processes but also that that theory of change or where you want to embed and sustain practice change over time and it's important for our leaders to build confidence as well in selecting the right tools and like assessment for instance how to interpret the data how to I inform the teaching and learning how to I, um, support my teachers and what kind of you know, time allocation, collaboration among staff, and that is also very important. I work, there's so much to the job, really. <laughs> Recently, I've created a network of high schools, actually. I'm looking at refining, just investing a bit more time, providing more targeted support about that high school intervention, because I feel like it's it's a little bit lacking. So I think there's more we could do in that space. Set up some intervention, oh, sorry, some networks as well around spelling mastery because we've got like about 40 schools now running spelling mastery across the system I deliver training staff meeting also helping the new implementation of the curriculum and lucky us we've got two curriculums (laughs) we've Mm. got the new southwest syllabus and then the city you know like version nine of those training curriculum so that's a that's a big job and the whole team you know obviously is working on it Around the data, that dashboard I was talking about, that was a that's a big piece as well. Obviously, I'm not like it's a team effort what I'm talking about, but having high school to access the data, um, raising awareness about the potential of the Dibbles assessment. So as of next year, we're bringing we mandate Dibbles K to six. So we still have some schools that are not yet quite confident in 
using the tool in that three to six space. So we've we've got it well established in the K to two space, and teachers can see the potential of the tool and and the granularity of the data we get, and also the potential at a whole system level. So we've already seen great, great, great results, especially in the kindy kindergarten space. Mm-hmm. So looking, yeah, I help with the phonics check as well because we also administer the phonics check. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to it. I'm, I'm putting together, I mean, with my team, we're working on an HIDP handbook for the system. So cool. our next big piece is about embedding that system or, oh, sorry, practice change. So we've yeah. we've launched, in, you know, the Catalyst started yeah. in 2021. So we're in our third year, end of third year. The next piece is about embedding those practice change and then the yeah. next third phase is going to be about the sustainability and how mm. you know we make those practice visible and durable in every classroom yeah exciting times and you know it's great to i guess get a bit of an update on catalyst you know like i've, I've covered the catalyst journey a bit earlier on in the year and, yes. um yeah you know just just following you know the story has been yeah really inspiring you know from from someone not in in part of Catalyst system. Uh, yeah, it's inspiring to see, you know, such a a big system, you know, making these changes and and I guess the the thought process that's going into it. And yeah, I think it's it's valuable for not just systems within Australia, but yeah, I think internationally there's a lot to learn from what you guys are doing. And I think it's yeah, it's great. You know, there's a there's a lot of young people, a lot of students that are going to be benefiting, you know, from what's that's, happening. Yeah. yeah. That's what we want. And it's yeah. I was just attending the Catholic um, Leaders Day. That was yesterday, actually, where we we gather all our principals together, and you know, during the day for trainings. And and there yeah. was director Ross Fox talking, you know, addressing the the final keynotes of the day. And one of his key messages was about we're not going to change. Like it's nothing new's going to come in. <laughs> we stick to this. And it was again, it was referring to that you know, like making sure that we don't let the good get in the way of the better, but we don't need anything newish. Like we can't keep jumping on new things all the time and shiny things all the time. Now mm. we've aligned our practice. So, you know, we launched that initiative strongly aligned with the research. Now we need to really consolidate and, you know, spend more time within that implementation phase to make sure that we're going to have sustainable change that benefits our students over time. For the price of a cup of coffee each month, you can support the Knowledge for Teachers podcast and help me provide more in-depth case studies and ensure its sustainability. I would be truly grateful if you went to patron.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast. Patrons will also get access to exclusive episodes, my key takeaways from each episode, and more. For large organisations that are interested in sponsoring the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, send me an email at brendan at learnwithlee.net. As we begin to wrap up today's conversation, do you have any last words to add around MTSS? I think one of my key messages I like, you know, people to go away with thinking that all students can learn and it's that it's never too late for students to learn that we, you know, no matter what age, what postcode, it, it doesn't matter. Like even if they're high school kids struggling with reading students that have, you know, had experienced learning difficulties or, or failing throughout the, the school system. In primary schools, I think it's very important that we think that, yeah, we can still do something. It, it's almost too late, but it's still it's still time to intervene. That's what I, I 
I strongly encourage and, and advocate for uh, screening, especially screening in the first year of, of high school, because I think um, the earliest you screen, uh, the earliest you can intervene and so address, you know, any any learning difficulties there. And another point, sorry, I might put two is, I always go with measure the gain, not the gap, especially for his high school kids or older struggling readers. We know that there's a, all the streaming readers tends to make a slower rate of progress. You would see greater growth in in early, you know, early or like in early years when they're in kindy year one. That's where you yeah. know they learn hips more or hips more. They make greater greater progress. And when you get to high school, there's a whole different story. You've got that motivation, self esteem, other external factors gets in the way. It's a lot harder. And you know, you they've they've also been failing for so many years really had to undo bad habits for instance you know if they've mm. been taught how to read based on you know guessing words that's going to be hard to bring it back to phonics instruction so yeah so those are the two that I really think you know research money has been heavily invested on early literacy but I think there's a need to invest in adolescent literacy and there's more work to be done in that space yeah and, and you know I like how you've highlighted that point because we don't want to just let them go through, you know, the, the rest of their high school career struggling. You know, we want to still support them because that's what happens is that, you know, they entered into year seven with, with its negative kind of concept of school and it just gets bigger and bigger. That, that negativity and, and that sense of self-worth just goes downhill. That's right. Yeah, it's it's really, like, like I mentioned before, I, I used to be a high school teacher and it, it was really hard to, to see it. You know, you, you see these kids coming in and you know that they've got so much ahead of them in their life, but they're just not enjoying their time at school. And the main reason is that they haven't felt success and yeah. they struggle to read. You know, they struggle to read and, and write and all those kind of things that should be basic for them. It, it doesn't come easy for them. And high school is, is the, it's pretty much their last chance. Or our mm. last chance to make a difference there. Yeah. Like I would feel, I, I can't let a, a child leave high school unable to read. That's just against my moral and my ethic. Like it's mm. just, it's just not right. So, mm. you know, catching up those kids so they become proficient readers would actually increase the chances of of them completing E twelve as well. And it mm. has, you know, learning how to read no matter what age you are, is a life-changing opportunity. You know, it's a human right. It's what they should walk out of with, you know, walking out of high schools or schools. Yeah. Um, and that has repercussion or cumulative effects, I guess, on their life because, you know, it's related to mental health. It's related to, you know, their employability, whether they can read a script, you know, and go to the GP, read a script. Yeah, it's, it's so important, so crucial. Yeah, and I, I guess... Like the other challenge in the high school space is actually the staff having the knowledge on how to teach, you know, struggling readers because like we we don't necessarily have the skills and the knowledge in the primary sector, yeah, <laughs> let alone in the secondary sector where you where you again you you tend to put this in in the hands of English teachers, but they don't necessarily know how to teach someone to read. No, I mean, and there's no. There's no training or resources, like age-appropriate resources, not that many in that space. Yeah. And it's not part of their teacher training yeah. for secondary teachers, like their domain-specific 
they don't have the the requisite skills to teach the basics of of writing and reading and i can't blame them it wasn't mm. you know they, they're they're pretty much ill-equipped they weren't given the tools to do it yeah 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 well look let's let's get on to some positive news because mm -hmm. you you've whispered to me <laughs> off air that there might be some exciting news that you'd like to share and so what is that exciting news jess Yes, thank you for giving me the platform to announce it. I'm very excited to, I've received a PhD scholarship to work at the Australian Catholic University under the supervision of Anne Castle. So she received a grant and to study adolescent literacy. So I'm going to be working with her in that space with the team of the Australian Centre for Advancement of Literacy. So I'm very excited. I'll still be working at CCG and hope to complete a PhD in the next couple of years, hopefully, and learn more, you know, and, and you know, have an impact in, in that space as well. So I'm really hoping for a great intensive learning turn <laughs> yeah yeah well, look, that's, that's super exciting and congratulations uh, such you. a great opportunity especially if you're working with someone like Anne Castles uh, you know like such a a legend of of the Australian education yeah. scene and and I'm sure that you will add a lot of value in this space um, you know I can already tell just from not just our conversation but I know you know the the research that you have already done that yeah you, you're gonna kind of plug a lot of gaps in in what we know about you know the intervention and mtss and you know making sure that people aren't falling through the gaps and we're able to support as many young people as possible in in learning how to read which which should be the fundamental skill that that we we teach our kids to have that's right we're just gonna catch them all yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, love it. And and Jess, it's been, you know, really, really fascinating talking to you today. And I've enjoyed learning about your Churchill Fellowship experience and, you know, about your, your case studies that about schools that have in, implemented the multi-tiered system of support framework really well. And um, look, this is the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. So I just want to find out, you know, what other bits of knowledge or resources would you recommend for teachers and school leaders? I think I referred to the work of Errol, the Australian Educational Research Organization. They've got really practical resources there. Uh, and in the space of MTSS, I'm, I'm one of the expert reviewer and, and working. I mean, there's a new piece coming up at the start of next year. So stay tuned on that one. Yeah. Um, some of the podcasts, uh, Melissa and Laurie Love Literacy, I really like that one of the science yeah. of reading with Susan Lambert. And we had um Pamela Snow and and um and Smith yeah that's yeah. right they, I was so pleased to hear that they're just yeah. launched to that international platform um so yeah though they're good ones I mean in terms of books I would highly recommend Stanislas the hand on how we learn he talks about mm -hmm. the four pillars of learning I didn't go into it but that's something that I often refer to yeah, Endowment Education Foundation is one platform that I often go back to. That they've got a really good piece on improving literacy in secondary schools. That's a good one. I'm thinking about yeah. So Errol, yeah, that's that might be it. I mean, have a look at my uh, report. Maybe there'll be more in there. Oh yeah, one good book actually. What I'm thinking of it. If you're in high school, uh, thinking reading. Uh, what every secondary teacher should know about reading from Diane. And um, James Murphy, I recently connected with them, very passionate educators. They're about to write their second book now, and they might come to Australia next year. So, awesome. And so, that's a book focused on high school literacy, is it? 
Yeah, like, yeah, how to, yeah, it's a very, very accessible book and it, it really raises some of the challenges in high school about upskilling and, and building teacher capacity around, you know, language and literacy and, and reading instruction and the different challenges you might face. You know, motivation is one, we haven't talked about it, but high school kids who struggle with reading, there's also that motivation piece that's that gets in the way. Yeah, it's a very good book. Uh, I often use it as a book club or like to introduce MTSS in high school. That's my point of entry. Yeah, awesome. And, you know, thanks for your time today. It's It's been great. And, yeah, look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you so much, Brendan, for having me. Jess has got such a positive energy and drive to make a difference. I really enjoy digging into some of the considerations we need to be making when looking to implement MTSS. Here are my key takeaways. I loved her example of how someone like Anita Archer still has piles of research that she is reading through as an example of being a lifelong learner. She described how ineffective instruction relies on summative assessment tasks that come too late at the end of a unit. So effective instruction involves constant checking for understanding to ensure that what is being taught is being learned. Jess addressed the misconception that the I do, we do, you do is linear, but rather the we do and you do doesn't have to be in that order. When teachers don't have content knowledge, we need to support them with scripted programs or at least the instructional resources. On direct instruction programs, she used Anita Archer's example of how surgeons aren't expected to build their tools or a pilot asked to build his plane, yet we expect teachers to do both the teaching and developing their resources. Multi-tiered system of support is not a program or intervention but a way of thinking. It requires people to move from a wait-to-fail approach to a more preventative and proactive approach where you screen all the students from the get-go. It's really valuable for schools to screen students before they transition into primary or high school. Schools can demonstrate their priorities by timetabling them in like the high schools in Blackpool did with reading across the school. Jess also emphasised the importance of leaders having a very strong commitment towards their vision and goals. One of the points that she highlighted was the importance of using data to inform your decision-making process. I loved her example of the school-wide assessment team, or SWOT, who would not only plan to run the assessments, but plan in times to review the data. We also need to know what the exit criteria is to get out of the intervention. We need to ensure that the tiers are aligned. There's no point only having effective teaching practices being employed in the intervention when the tier 1 teaching is questionable. When providing PL, don't assume that they already know things. Jess spoke about how you can get more buy-in with teachers when you actually model things with their class. We want to move away from the spray, pray and go away approach of professional learning and actually follow it up with holding teachers accountable with feedback. She described the direct instruction model of delivering PL is that actually 50% of the session is devoted to modelling and practice. Jess also reminded us that sometimes we have to take away good practice for better practice. I like how she made the point of ensuring that we understand that all students can learn and not to give up on them if they're in high school or because they have, they have learning difficulties. We need to measure the gains, not the gap. The last couple of episodes have focused on ensuring that every student has an opportunity to experience success at school and we'll continue that theme in the next episode with Dr Tim McDonald. He also conveniently has recently released a paper through the Centre for Independent Studies on Teaching Behaviour and we will explore that in more detail. However, that's it from me for today, and as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.